0: And now we're speaking with Professor Tim Anderson. He's over at the University of Sydney and a member of Hands Off Syria Committee. And uh, so we're very glad to be able to reach him in Australia. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us today or tomorrow, I suppose, as it is over there. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit awkward to coordinate, but um, it, what happened in Australia was very exciting for us here in Canada. Um, we have a, we're we're part of the Syria Solidarity Movement. Uh, some organizations here, like the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, other groups, and uh, what happened in Australia was very impressive to us because it looks uh, to be a very sophisticated event um, this conference and what i'm referring to is uh, the conference that was called after the war on syria imperialism independence and human rights this occurred in late april and the videos were recently placed online um, before we go into the details of course i i noticed that uh, i don't think anything of this complexity or sophistication has been put together in the United States. Um, you know, Australia has a very high degree of activism to protect Syria's sovereignty um, and to combat imperialism. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on why uh, a country the size of Australia, in terms of population, is often able to do more than a country ten times its size, uh, such as the United States.
1: Well, I'm not sure that we that impressive but there's been a group of us who've been doing it for a while and um, it really began with a lot of the Syrian Australians um, and some of non-Syrians such as myself that supported them. This was really an academic conference, um, it was the first of its type in Australia and, um, and we did it fairly independently but in the oldest university in Australia. I don't think there's anything special about Australia. I mean, in some respects, we have a worse media than than elsewhere, than in Europe or the U.S., for example. Like, there's the corporate media and the state media are extremely concentrated. They're very monolithic uh, on when it comes to a war, and Australia, the Australian government has been traditionally very dependent on the U.S., almost completely dependent when it comes to the Middle East wars. So. The lack of information has been striking here. Maybe there's a reaction against that, that people really are looking for other sources of information because the the official sources of information are so uh, poor, so uh, controlled. And the fact that they attacked this conference shows you how aggressive they are in terms of trying to keep that monopoly of information.
0: That that is entirely possible. I remember a similar situation that existed in Canada with reference to Haiti. Uh, the media was so circumspect or um, closed mouth about Canada's role in Haiti during the uh, uh, removal of Aristide that it was um, it actually engendered a high degree of activism in parts of the country. So that's entirely possible. But uh, yeah, the conference itself. Yeah, uh, yes, it was. Um, it was. Um, organized by the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies uh, to carry out uh, research on these issues. Um, and I understand, of course, there was um, there was media anxiety, as you mentioned in the introductions, um, and uh, th- there was a degree of opposition because, God forbid, someone should uh, discuss why sovereignty is important or why it's wrong for foreign actors to interfere in Syrian politics. Uh, to, to show just one dissenting voice in Australia um, led to uh, something of an outcry from certain uh, sectors. You invited people who support the armed opposition in Syria. I I don't know if anyone came. How did that work out?
1: No, no one did come. But it was interesting because the history of, I mean, there are some small groups that support, we call them the imperial left, because basically they support al-Qaeda groups. They pretend there are non-al-Qaeda groups there, but effectively, some of them openly support um, the al-Qaeda groups. But Uh, Most of them are trying to pretend there's some sort of secular revolution going on, as they were instructed by the big powers when they began this this fake revolution. So there's a small group that have been carrying on with that type of propaganda, um, and uh, they had tried to block us from speaking at other venues. Um, uh, I can give you some examples, if you like, but it goes back a couple of years. um, Where we thought, in the spirit of an academic conference, we're going to allow any sort of... um, reasonable discussion to come in here and it doesn't matter if we disagree, if the organisers disagree with the conclusions of those papers. I mean, that's a, an academic tradition in many ways, good, good academic tradition. Um, so we, I specifically said to these people, listen, if you want to put in a paper, you, you can do it. You know, We're not going to censor you on the basis of your conclusions, but so long as you have a reasonable argument, you can present it in a, in a rational sort of way. Um, they declined, basically. So at least we, we made the offer there. Similarly, um, because in my particular session, I was talking quite a bit about Amnesty International. We specifically went to Amnesty International and said to them, look, we, uh, one of the sessions we have is very critical of your propaganda work on Syria, and perhaps you'd like time to respond. Here's a 20, 30-minute segment. You can come and respond if you'd like. And they declined too. Um, I think the thing about the attacks on the conference was the timing, really, that um, the conference was organised from the beginning of this year. But what happened in the weeks leading up to the conference was there was this uh, missile attack by the Trump administration on Syria. And and with the false pretext of that chemical weapons incident in Idlib. So um, we, you know, there was a certain amount of discussion about that, and when it, when it emerged when they discovered that uh, we'd been saying what we have been saying for at least five years, that there were these false flag instruments that we used to perpetuate this so-called humanitarian war against Syria, they decided to, to turn on us, just really to intimidate or to try and shut up any voices that were um, uh, protesting or dissenting from the White House story at that time about that particular missile attack. So the timing of it, of the conference was good in that sense in that they attacked us um, and attracted a lot more attention to the conference. So I think they could have almost doubled the, the number of people who were interested and in came to that conference. We had 150 people or more at that conference and 18 presentations and it was packed for every one of the five sessions and the media by attacking us really did us a favour.
0: Yes, uh, that can often be the case, and it can backfire in that respect. The way you handled the media attack was amusing. You showed some of the sensational, uh, outrageous um, commentaries, and um, I'm sure it amused the conference attendees. Um, You know, just on what you were saying about left. Left groups or left approaches to the conflict over the last five years um, it, it, that does bring to mind Jay Therapel's talk, um, which, yeah. uh, like all the other talks, is available on, on the YouTube videos. I guess he was looking at what shaped the perspective of the what you call the imperial left there on the conflict. Um, and yeah. uh, Jay, like others, has mentioned that the Western left uh, was seduced by a, a narrative of the Syrian revolution that uh, was not investigated. Very closely because uh, people, in a sense, wanted to believe um, and they, they wanted to be part of what they hoped was a, a, some kind of liberatory action. And, and it seems to be part of a trend of supporting revolutions, that, as they're called on television, uh, without investigating the, the uh, content um, of of those uh, th- those actions, so I guess what yeah. J- Jay was saying was, you know, there, well, what what's, what constitutes this this uprising against the government? And um, I mean, his view was was different than uh, much of what has been presented to us.
1: Well, uh, I, in some respects, um, these groups are fairly small. We're talking about small Trotskyist and anarchist groups. Not all of the Trotskyist groups. Some of them are against the intervention, but these small groups have. Really been captured by the State Department rhetoric and the um, the Salafi rhetoric that came out of the early days of this um, of this conflict. But there's been six years now, and um, I, I suppose we have to admit that it's been an extraordinarily successful war propaganda uh, campaign run by the, the White House administration and the Associated Media. Um, not just in terms of a supposed revolution, but the humanitarian war idea which, um, which affects the liberal responses to or what you might call the liberal imperialist responses to, to this war. I think even after six years, um, we'd have to admit that a large part, probably a majority of the Western liberals still um, buy this type of uh, humanitarian pretext for intervention in Syria. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary commentary on Western societies, really, that they've been so successful over such a long period of time. This is a, probably the best documented conflict in history. It's gone on for six years, which is probably longer than the Second World War, for example. And the Western populations are still struggling to understand really what it's all about. It's an extraordinary commentary on our own societies, isn't it?
0: Oh, yes, I think so. And I think it relates to two of the presentations. I mean, first of all, um, Jay Therapel again, was talking about the colonial lens by which even leftists in the West view uh, conflicts in the Middle East, regime change operations and so forth. And Jay highlighted what he called a colonial tyrant versus victims narrative wherein, of course, they're dealing with the quote, Assad regime versus the Syrian population, as if they're a bunch of helpless victims who need to be liberated from a mad dictator, which is a racist narrative, and it's inaccurate. And of course, we know that the government, which is comprised of many individuals, have uh, significant popular support in the country for reasons that are historically rooted. And to ignore all that and deny all that and to erase all that is, is a colonialist perspective that has been very much adopted here, unfortunately. And, you know, at the same time, you have various organizations putting forward the humanitarian narrative, you talk about it, and I think uh, presenter Tiana Sukaria was looking at um, what was called a MacGuffin, a, a sort of a, a concept of humanitarianism that becomes a reason to get people in, involved in a certain view of the conflict, and then is discarded once the powers that be have gotten what they want. So, yeah. you know, they're suffering, and it's presented in an apolitical context. Uh, people are getting hurt, and the solution to that, of course, is that we need to bring in more Western military force. And the example was given in, in uh, that presentation of um, the, the Alon Kurdi um, the death of the, the child, and it was very unfortunate and very tragic. And the way that newspapers in Australia handled it, such as The Sun, was to say, look how terrible this is. Let's send more bombs into Syria. Let's have a p- opinion poll. How many of you think we should send more bombs into Syria? That's the response to a humanitarian yep. crisis. Um, your whole presentation focused heavily on these issues. I don't want to take away from you. You were looking at what you called the human rights industry, and it's to create an exception to sovereignty, which is covered in in some presentations, create an exception to sovereignty. And before we say anything about that, uh, I know Susan Hanna was looking at that, that she had to basically lay out why sovereignty is important, what sovereignty is, and she had to do so because it's not covered in the corporate media or left analysis of the conflict. So that is an underlying problem right there.
1: Yeah, well, let's take it one at a time. You mentioned at first um, a couple of the most, striking, um, uh, outstanding presentations. So I think Jack are was talking about the, the failures or the, the illusion of the, the Western left over this conflict. And the other one, a young Syrian-Australian woman, Tiana Supere, Now she's only 18. She's only just finished school. And what she was talking about was the, the which is like a Hitchcock word from a Hitchcock movie that says pretexts for the story. And in the end, the pretext doesn't matter. I mean, you could have uh, linked it, for example, to of the mass destruction story about Iraq. But what mass was, a story set up to begin the intervention, to begin the intervention. In the end, it didn't matter. You know, the fact that it was false, sorry, Bush jokes about it now. No one really cared about it now. Um, it was a, a pretext set up. And when the intervention happened, when Saddam was destroyed, when Iraq was destroyed, um, uh, they just, they didn't. Care about that pretext anymore. So one of the good things about this conference was you had these brilliant young people. Really, Jay is a the young PhD student who's been studying this for a number of years, and Kiana, yes. young yes. Syrian Australian, very articulate. Really, was one of the one of the outstanding presentations there. There are a number of very good demonstration uh, presentations. Sorry, at, at the conference. So I think those first two really still stick in my mind. And fortunately, we've got them on video, and you can you can see them on on our on our site.
0: Well, um, I, I think sovereignty was the focus of some of those presentations. And the overarching issue here is that um, every country in the world is supposed to have sovereignty so that they are not intervened in and so that they can decide their own political matters. And of course, that has not been the intention of the United States and affiliated powers. And so they've been trying to interfere in Syria, as in elsewhere. The um, the example of Libya comes up frequently. The example of Iraq comes up frequently in the presentations. Um, but in, in the case of Syria, you're, you specifically in your presentation showed that um the human rights organizations that exist in um the global north uh, human rights watch amnesty international in terms of their top leadership it seems that the goal here was uh in line with the political entities to create an exception uh in terms of sovereignty, to get around mm-hmm. the established international law. Um, and yeah. it, these are liberal groups, uh, in the, for the most part, that are involved in promoting a humanitarian, apolitical yeah. perspective. And, and of course, liber- liberalism is not a moderating force on imperialism. When when, when you're talking about the oh. empire, the liberal organizations, I mean, you look at the history of it from then till now, that we're not, yeah. you know, these groups are not, are not slowing down the empire.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, what they've demonstrated, I think, is a a, very, a much longer tradition that maybe a lot of us have forgotten about, that there was, in the 19th century, a very strong current of liberal imperialism, um, really rejected the idea of decolonization, for example, that the famous English liberal John Stuart Mills, who's often quoted in relation to his talks about the limits of state power and the rights of the individual and so on, he was a complete believer in colonialism he didn 't believe in decolonization didn 't believe in the independence of colonial uh, colonized peoples, for example so in the Syrian conflict, as you' pointed out um, there 's been this extreme campaign extreme campaign of uh, lies the fake news campaigns to try and create that exception, as you say, to try and blast a hole in international law, because international law, since the United Nations Charter in 1945, um, sets out this principle of sovereignty and and non-intervention, and the prevention of war... the purpose of it is the prevention of war. The human rights system in the United Nations also sets up the principle of the self-determination of peoples as a foundation of the human rights system. And yet the human rights argument is used to precisely to undermine that. I see one in the CNN this week, actually. Extraordinary. It's got a picture of a child there. It's one of these um, white-helmet al-Qaeda uh, propaganda scams that's come in. And the CNN headline is, Gasping for Life. Syria's merciless war on its own children. Now, if you think about that for a second, uh, or for, for more than a few seconds, I can't think of any regime in history that's ever declared a, a worse merciless war on its own children. It just hasn't happened. The the extremity uh, and, the what do you say, the vehemence of, and the insistence of this um uh, lying campaign of propaganda against Syria, that it's killing its own children. Uh, therefore, we must disregard international law, we must disregard the principles of international human rights on human rights grounds. Um, it's an extraordinary campaign, and I don't know to what extent uh, popular opinion is swinging around, but the fact that we are in this the middle of this extreme dishonesty, extreme, if you like, de-education of people about what's going on in not just in Syria, in the whole series of wars, as, as you've mentioned, across the Middle East. I mean, this is the fifth or the sixth of a similar set of wars in the last 15 years. And um, it's still, we're still at a point, at least in my country, where um, the corporate media and the state media will not tolerate any dissent or any criticism of this series of wars.
0: Yes. Um, I, and that, again, was a, a theme in some talks. Uh, um, the The whole issue of human rights intervention versus sovereignty is key to the wars of the last few decades. Um, with the, the end of the 20th century, the end of the Cold War, the trend has been to get rid of the... Um, International law, as you've pointed out, and it's it's bigger than that because um, although many people calling for intervention in Syria, people calling to do something as if things are not already being done, uh, they try to do so on the on the basis of, of, of a vague human rights idea. But as you've pointed out, you know, and the way human rights has been established um, through struggle over the years by different forces and countries, you know, first. Principle of the, the International uh, Bill of Rights uh, is self determination of peoples. I believe you pointed that out.
1: Yeah, and and it's been in, it's been uh, spelt out by the UN Human Rights Commission in a general comment that this is the foundation of all of the other principles. In other words, if there is not a sovereign body to protect the rights of citizens, um, then the foundation of that protection disappears. Now um, the Big Powers created a doctrine um, back in the, in the late 1990s and it was uh, crystallized to some extent in two thousand and five in a, a general principle which had been around for a long time called humanitarian intervention, but into a particular doctrine called the responsibility to protect now the responsibility to protect pretends to create some exceptions to the normal uh, the normal presumptions of anti-war anti-intervention pro-sovereignty and based on great crimes so it has to be great crimes you know like crimes against humanity war crimes and genocide and so on and that's why the extremities of this campaign of systematic dishonesty against syria go on to try and avoid or hide the fact that the you know, the funding of armed groups is clearly in contravention of of international law the fact that the invasions that are going on are clearly in, in contravention of international law because there is this extreme exception going on, the extreme exception and the extreme exception is this uh, Syrian government is worse than anything else that you've ever seen in human history it has a campaign of genocide against its own children. They are destroying their own children, arbitrarily attacking hospitals, schools, and so on. Uh, it's, it's such extreme propaganda that people, I think, in the future will look back at it and think, how could people have have contemplated that sort of thing? That no system destroys its own children. That's what? simply a fact about human society. But somehow or other, we live in the middle of these things and people are intimidated or attacked to try and avoid, you know, raising that question, what's the old The old story that the emperor the emperor has no clothes it can't it's something that can't be said at the moment apparently
0: yes there have been news articles on on the subject of war propaganda in syria some journalists have said this is the most shameful episode in the history of western uh journalism um, as because as you said the propaganda is very over the top and it has to paint the Syrian government as a bunch of cartoon butchers who are committing any crime we can we can pin on them um, and basically all the stops have been pulled out uh, with regard to, to propaganda and, and how events are portrayed and i, I you made a, an important point on that note which is that the the narratives about alleged chemical attacks and other alleged incidents that are used as pretext to condemn the government much of this so very much of these narratives are, are come from outside the country and, and are driven by the interventionist powers um, rather than, uh, const, you know, coherently constituted groups within Syria.
1: Yes, well, there's a marriage of convenience, of course, between the big powers, the big foreign powers, and the um, the sectarian Islamists who are at the root of all of the all of the proxy army, um, the proxy armies in Syria and in Iraq, by the way, and in Lebanon, by the way. Um, So it's really three countries that's involved, um, not just Syria. And, um, yeah, the the uncritical acceptance of the stories coming from the al-Qaeda groups themselves, um, and and when I say uncritical, it also means that people have to suspend belief that people who are publicly boasting about cutting people's throats and chopping off heads in public uh, are now accepted. They and and their associates are accepted as unquestioned sources of honest information about what's going on there as if lying is beyond them cutting off heads is not beyond them but lying apparently is beyond them so we see the same sources being used again and again for these stories like as you say the chemical weapons stories and so on um without questioning or if the questioning is there it's buried at paragraph 10 which which the average uh, newspaper really doesn't get to i think really people that are and i'm talking about the corporate and the state media here of course there are other, some other independent sources, and particularly because we do have community radio and we do have the internet, there are independent sources. But in terms of what the average sort of um, media junk food consumption that people consume, it's to me, it's it's a very powerful, corrosive, systematic de-educating process that's going on. So long as people do um, absorb what they see on television and and the newspapers about this about this war.
0: Yes. You have managed to put together a number of keynote speakers, academics, researchers, as well as new voices, and it's all very interesting, but I, I know it must have taken time to organize this, and you, you got 100 people into a, a room for various conferences and sessions. I guess at the end, what what does it all mean? Is this going to have any effect on public discourse, or, or what is the takeaway from organizing a conference like this?
1: Well, academic conferences are typically pretty isolated and pretty, um, you know, like esoteric sorts of things. Um, this was actually a highly participatory conference. Um, as you say, we had about 100 people in every session, more than 100 sometimes overall, well over 150 in the conference. But when you had 100 people, a large number of whom were keen to talk about these sorts of things, there was, and we, we put up all of the question sessions too on the internet, um, you have a really interesting, rich type of discussion going on. There were are, are people who were relatively well-informed. There were people who were honest and curious. And there was long discussion after the presentations. And I think it's true, it's operating in a relatively small group of people, but it's helping educate and motivate those groups of people to um, do something more. Uh, it also attracted a lot of young, as I said, Syrian Australians like Tiana, for example, uh, to get involved and to, and to do more. But I think that sometimes we underestimate the value of, um, training and helping people understand at a base level so that they can go out and propagate information and so on. We're talking about something that's obviously not only not in the ambit of the corporate and state media, but which is constantly running a war line, but, um, something that's actually deliberately marginalized there. So I, I think it's, it's a small group and it was marginalized, but we've, we've actually now – we documented it all on video and that's all online, so it's able to be used. I think what we are not very good at – and when I say we, I mean the, the left generally and anti-war movement and academics generally is promoting and marketing things, but at least we have, we have a resource which we can now – um, promote and, and make available to other people
0: certainly it's an interesting new development uh, I guess we can find this information online people can what search for the the center for counter hegemonic studies or look up the, the YouTube center for, page
1: the center for, yeah the center for counter hegemonic studies so the all of the videos are linked there and there's also a center for counter hegemonic studies. Um, YouTube channel, which holds holds them as well.
0: Well, that's very helpful. Uh, thanks for giving us that information. I'll try to put up a link to a, a video page uh, when we thanks. put this program on the internet, but uh, otherwise, uh, thanks very much uh, for, for sharing that with us all today.
1: Thanks, thanks for that, Brendan.